It's the Ruby on Rails podcast show number 93, February 2009. Almost kept up my string of releasing a podcast every two weeks on Fridays. Missed that last Friday, but here it's a Monday and here it is. So I'm going to try to keep that up from now on. It's a lot of work to do one weekly like the Rails Envy guys, but I'll uh, try to put one up there every two weeks or so on Fridays. Today spoke with Ryan Tomeko. Contributed quite a lot of code to Rails for quite a while and is now on the Rack Core team, also the Sinatra team, and works at Heroku. So talking with Ryan Tomeko, developer, often uh, has shown up kind of on the edges of several different things, uh, almost from the beginning of the time that I started using Rails, and I thought I wanted to talk to him and see what he's up to and uh, figure find out about some of these different issues. So I wanted to start way back in uh, January 2005. You wrote an article on your blog. You were mostly a Python developer at the time, and you uh, pointed out some of the features on Ruby on Rails that you thought were interesting ideas, and we're even going to start a plan for how that kind of thing could be implemented in Python. What attracted you to Rails, and why didn't you end up trying to re-implement in Python? Well, I actually did start out trying to okay. re-implement. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't actually uh, plan to like clone Rails in Python, but there were a lot of individual components that existed in Python uh, right around the time that Rails came out. There were a lot of template engines and ORMs and uh, you know sort of routing components, uh, but nothing kind of tied it all together with like the convention over configuration model. So there was still quite a bit of work that needed to be done to pull things together, and it was. There were different pieces needed needed a little bit of work as well. At the time, it was kind of interesting in Python because uh, there were sort of two factions in the Python web community, which at the time was probably about the same size as the Ruby web community, but it was much more fractured. And there were kind of like two minds about where the Python web community should go. And having seen Rails, which uh, most Python developers, I think, once Rails had been out for a little while, it, had really taken a hard look at it and seen that some of the things that Rails did were very good. And so there was a group, which I would consider myself a part of, that really wanted to try to rally the Python web community to a single web framework or to try to at least cut down the number of web frameworks so that we could have you know more eyeballs on a single code base. And then there were these crazy guys that wanted to do the WSGI thing, which is kind of interesting. The Python WSGI is the web web server gateway interface. That yeah, I wanted Rack, to ask you about that later because Rack was influenced by that. Exactly. So I was actually anti WSGI in Python because I thought it was uh, interesting to be almost detrimental to the community that it was uh, sort of over engineering and kind of architect astronaut stuff. That what we really needed to do was all come together, focus on a single web framework, so we could get the same kind of momentum and velocity as Rails. So my faction kind of lost out in the, in the Python community. And so, you know, I kind of jumped ship and went the uh, Ruby way, which Ruby as a language, I think, is, is great as well. So, yeah, that's sort of uh, the story of my time in Python and the Python web world. Uh, so your summary was, I think, expressed exactly what I thought about when I started using Rails was that none of the ideas were really that revolutionary or original other people had, of course, templating, few templating libraries, and Rails didn't invent the ORM or even the idea of routing. But the fact that it was all together 
in an ice package was great. You said, you know, it, it helps you skip the tool selection phase, get straight to the problem domain. Exactly. Yeah, because I will I'll futz over my environment endlessly, given the chance. You know, I saw that as a huge advantage to Rails. The idea that for, for a lot of things that just don't matter, pick pick a way to do it and do it that way. And it removes a lot of sort of the uh, thinking that needs to occur when you start a project. Now, it's interesting to hear that you're involved in Rack on the commit team for Rack, which I'll ask you about in a minute. But also, I'm interested in Sinatra. You, you can contribute quite a lot of code to Sinatra, and that seems like almost the opposite to where it's fairly free form and it doesn't pick an ORM for you. And, and there is a, a bit of work that you have to do in order to put together a, a Sinatra app. Where does that fit in the, in this context? Um, well, I think, I think Sinatra is really interesting in that even though you, you have to select an ORM and some other things, it's still very easy to get the basic, the basic application up and running. So if you start from sort of the single route or hello world, it's just trivial to get a Sinatra app up as far as, you know, it's a single file with three lines of code in it. So that really appealed to me. And for a long time now, I've been looking for, or kind of had, uh, an idea of this language that could be used to explain different concepts around web architecture and, and HTTP. Because even outside of building web applications, I'm very interested in uh, sort of just web architecture from a theoretical standpoint or sort of the way you know REST and HTTP works and the different things you can take advantage of as far as caching and you know all these things go. You know, I've, I've wanted to talk about that stuff on, on my blog and different things that I've written about, but there's it's very hard to explain something with uh with today's web frameworks just because there's so much you know kind of boilerplate code that's required. Uh Sinatra I thought was really interesting because I can literally just have in line in a blog post like whole applications that show off pretty uh advanced functionality. So that was my initial appeal of Sinatra and also that it uh kind of integrates with with Rack really well. So you get a lot of good components and functionality out of the box just straight from Rack. And as has been mentioned a couple times, Rack is a big part of that because then it allows you to plug in these different pieces of middle middleware that add quite a lot of functionality. Why did you choose to get involved with Rack? It's interesting to hear that you didn't think that that general idea of a generic web interface was a good idea, but then uh, eventually what, what changed your mind? Well, really watching the, watching the Python community and what they were able to do with WSGI after a couple years of it being in place and uh, sort of, you know, there's a, I don't think it's a framework, but a set of utility components called Paste in Python, where you actually get to really see the advantages of having a sort of uniform spec or protocol for how different web applications interact. And the fact that they were able to bring sort of these common components together and really build individual web frameworks easily and quickly you know, really turned me, uh, my opinion on whether or not that was a good idea. I don't know that I ever really hated the idea of WSGI. I just thought that at the time it was, it was the wrong thing to concentrate on, but I don't know. In retrospect, who's to say who's right. I mean, both the Python and Ruby communities are doing pretty well right now. And I think the Python community really kind of start started in a way that was split up lots of individual components um, where the Ruby community really had Rails in a single community. And now the Ruby community seems to be going to the you know smaller pieces model, and the Python community has Django and some great uh, frameworks where there's some consolidation over there. So I don't know. 
it's uh, it's kind of interesting just to look at uh, how the two projects, or the two language environments, have evolved. And really, are they are they going to end up at the same place, or was there any real advantage to doing either one? I thought it was interesting that some of the objections from the Rails team were initially very similar in that, well, we're Rails, we can connect to a couple of different application servers, why would we need to use a generic thing? Uh, what what we're using is valuable for us. But then eventually, it, it people realized, hey, there are other benefits other than just being able to plug in different web frameworks or different application servers and web frameworks frameworks you've also got this idea of middleware where you can plug in all, all kinds of functionality and extract that out of the core framework you published a couple months ago rack cache that handles a lot of caching and e-tags and that kind of thing How, what's your criteria for wh- where something a feature should be in the middleware rather than built into the framework and handled by the application code well i think we're actually i think we're still trying to lay down the rules like rack is kind of an interesting place to be right now just because you know we have the basic the basic spec in a set of utility code but the you know kind of patterns for where things fit are not yet well established so there's still a lot of experimentation but um in general i would say you know anything that that feels like it's something that can fit in between the server component being you know mongrel or thin and the actual framework and provide most of its functionality in a way that's transparent to the actual framework. So something that doesn't require providing an API or code that would be called directly from the user's uh, application code uh, is probably a good fit for middleware. And, you know, you have access to everything from the HTTP request um, on the way in, uh, and you can manipulate that environment for the framework. And then you also have access to the response, all the response headers, the status code, as well as the body. And so you can do, you know, anything uh, there like compression or authentication, you know, things that fit nicely in the, in the kind of idea of a, of a network intermediary, I think is a good, good spot for middleware. It seems too like a lot of these uh, things that maybe could have been Apache modules now as Ruby developers not needing to know C or, or write a, a, an Apache module, these kinds of things can be a piece of middleware. Like you said, compression, traditionally that would be just part of the, the web server, but now those kinds of things could be done in Ruby. Yep, exactly. I guess you could argue whether or not that's that's always beneficial. I mean, definitely compression in Apache implemented in C is probably going to be quite a bit faster than uh, implementing it in Ruby, even though I guess the underlying compression algorithms are are done in C, even even when you do it in Ruby. But I think the idea that all you need is Ruby and you can have all of these different features has benefits, especially with things like caching, where today it's it's a cache is a pretty big piece of infrastructure, so Squid or Varnish, um, getting that set up and running and testing it, maintaining it, and monitoring it. It's kind of a pain in the ass. And in order to see how your application behaves with a cache in front of it, uh, that's that's quite a bit that you have to go through. So being able to have things like that implemented as simple Ruby components that can be you know just shoved in the middleware pipeline, uh, I think has has a lot of benefit. What what do you see as kind of the end goal? Would, would it be ideal for Ruby to end up with something like the Java deployment options where the web server and everything is written in Java and you, you got the the whole thing that is just an entire package? 
I know I, at least at one point the Merb guys were thinking about trying to bring in Event Machine and some of those other things and just have everything be in Ruby. I don't know. I mean, I think you'd have to you'd have to be moving pretty fast in Ruby, uh, you know, for things like serving static files. As of right now, I mean, personally, I don't I don't really have a lot of problems from using C components, like even things that are implemented in C extensions. So I think there's I think there's benefit to you know having a single language, or you know, I think it definitely increases the ability of people to come in and hack on it, especially Ruby Ruby guys. But in general, I mean, fitting C components, whether they be libraries or servers, into the you know tool chain is, I guess, sometimes a pain in the ass. But in general, I don't think it's it's that big of a deal, um, and the benefits from it are are enormous over Ruby uh, performance wise. So. So it's still a trade-off, but it gives you the option to 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 implement it in Ruby, and then then think about whether whether that's fast enough or whether it does the job. Exactly. Well, rolling back, one of the other one of the first things that you contributed to Rails was script slash plugin, and I wasn't able to research to see if you also implemented the plugin arch- architecture within Rails, but. I thought that that was uh, that's one of the oldest parts of Rails that that still lives on. I went through the looking at the the blame messages, and even though Subversion doesn't record individual names, it looked like a lot of the code that you had written was in there. For example, scraping the Rails wiki for a list of <laughs> plugins, which at the at the time seemed seemed like a good idea when there were only ten or twenty plugins. Are you surprised that that code has lived on? so long and no uh, if you had to had to do it over again would you do it differently oh yeah so i mean I, I i'm definitely surprised to to see i mean i think that was 2005 or something whenever uh yeah just did that. um i did not do the plugin system the plugin system had been um announced actually i'm not sure who did that maybe jeremy kemper or david i'm not not entirely sure but um you know, basically what happened was the plugin system was announced, there was a lot of interest in it, and then then they threw up that wiki page, and within probably, I don't know, 15 hours or something, the wiki page had a good 50 plugins on it already um, that ranged from, you know, real simple ones to fairly complex ones that wrapped, you know, gems or, or whatever. So it seemed to me that that was a pretty good repository format, right? Just scrape the wiki page. Uh, pull down the repository, the uh, subversion repository URLs, um, and make it so that you can uh, install the plugins really fairly easily with a with a single command. I think it was mostly a response to the situation. You already had the plugin system. You already had a wiki page. It's like, what's the simplest possible thing we can do to get a simple uh, plugin management script going? Um, and I think it turned out pretty cool. I mean, like I think uh, you know made it a little bit easier to install plugins. So uh, I don't know that there's anything I would do differently there. Um, I mean, I guess we could have went and started a, a formal repository and all this kind of stuff, but that was that would have been a lot more work. It's definitely not something I could have gotten out in two or three hours, uh, like the like the original plugin script. There's something to be said for just getting something out there and and solving the problem that you have at the time, and then uh, modifying it later on. I've even found that you know, with trying to be a bit of an entrepreneur, run a business, there are many things that I could have made a lot more money or spent a lot less money if I'd done things differently at the beginning. But if I had waited all that time to plan it out, I would have never launched the business in the first place. So sometimes you, you got to plan to refactor, plan to throw the first one away, or in this case, it's still being used uh, three or four years later. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's actually one of the things that always, uh, 
kind of appealed to me, I guess another thing that distinguishes the Ruby and Python communities was when I first went and looked at Rails code base wise, I was I was surprised at some of the things that were were happening in Rails. Like for instance, uh, the database creation and uh, export scripts, rake tasks were basically like shelling out to the MySQL command or the Postgres PG SQL command. And you know, coming from the Python community, I mean, that was like, what? No, you can't do that. You have to use the libraries and you know, find out how to do that without, you know, running a, a shell command and uh, just the sort of pragmatics there that like, you know, in 95% of the case, if you're using MySQL, you have the MySQL command and let's just, you know, pipe some stuff to it uh, is, you know, it gets something there and running and working. And in the future, you can go back and refine that and make it better if you need to, um, which has happened. So I think it's, I think there's something to be said for first making it work and then making it good. Uh, and then making it fast. A couple six months ago or nine months ago, you moved to San Francisco to work with Songbird, and now you're working at Heroku. That's what right. what appealed to you about Heroku? What what are you going to be doing there? Heroku is really uh, kind of right down my alley. I think right now they're they're really trying to get this sort of next generation deployment platform or web platform uh, nailed down with you know just really simple deployment going to get it down to basically a git push you get pushed to a repo to deploy so there's no you know crazy tools and configuration like capistrano um you're basically pushing to a git repository and deployment just happens uh and you're just live so i think that's sort of an interesting challenge and something that uh is, is fun to work on but then also the idea of you know having common infrastructure uh server infrastructure available to you um just right out of the box without having to do anything really um, so if you look at how we're building Rails apps today, it's, it's, it's beginning to get a lot more complex than it was three or four years ago as far as, you know, you're using a lot of things like memcached, different types of databases. You're using things like caches, like Varnish and Squid, and then things like message queues to do background work. Um, and right now, that stuff is, is really hard to, it's not hard, but it's, it's kind of tedious and a pain to get set up. Uh, you know, managing all the server infrastructure is is not trivial. And, you know, then maintaining it, monitoring it, uh, doing all these things. So idea with Roku is to have basically all those components just, just available to you right off the bat, whether that be memcached or, you know, rock solid HTTP cache or something like RabbitMQ. You know, today I think there's most applications go through like this gradual evolution where if you need to do something like process work in the background, you have to start off and maybe you throw stuff in the database and then you have a cron job running that, you know, pulls the stuff out of the database and then runs it. Or then maybe you go with a plugin like a spawn or workling that just kind of forks you off in the background and then you run into the problems with that. And then you have to go, uh, you know, get a real sort of message queue. If all of these components were available or all this infrastructure was available to you in a way that was easy from the beginning, you could probably cut out a lot of time while initially developing. So, Heroku, I just think is, uh, I think I have a lot, a lot, a lot of the things that I've worked on for the last five or six years overlap greatly with with uh, what they're trying to accomplish. So, I think it's. I, well, I have a lot of respect for Adam and James and uh, Orion and other people who work there already. The I, I think it's impressive that they have felt the pain of deployment, but also have enough of the 
hardcore low-level skills to be able to implement that kind of a system. That's quite a combination that maybe is why that kind of thing hasn't happened on a large scale for for people yet. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, those guys, no doubt. I mean, every one of them are, you know, have uh, experience down down at the metal and then also, you know, just building building apps. So I think that's important. If you if you want to bring something like that together, you have to have you have to have both of those. You have to know what people are looking for and what's going to actually make their lives easier. But then also, uh, you know, like you said, have the chaps to uh, implement it in a way that scales and grows and um, doesn't uh, just totally fall down. Thinking about the future, do you think easier deployments, is there any way that you could even talk about what kind of effect that would have on eventual front-end web deplo- web development or the kinds of applications that are written? Or is it just that, well, now deployment is simpler and we don't have to worry about that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that you would see apps become a lot more usable quicker, probably, where you wouldn't have as many of the issues with doing things like processing work in the background. And then I think that also, like, architecturally, you might start to think about building applications differently as far as maybe breaking them down into smaller uh, apps, which is something that, you know, we've been experimenting with a lot, where, you know, almost like this micro app thing, where you try to have individual applications that focus on, you know, one core thing. So, you know, an application for auth or an application for, you know, taking image uploads or, you know, actually breaking your application up across uh, functional boundaries uh, into separate processes that can be scaled and managed uh, individually. Today, I think it's a little bit hard to do that just because of all the overhead involved with deploying a new application and monitoring a new application. But if it did become as easy as Git push and you're live and all of these components are just available to you, um, you know, your database is already there, your memcache is already there, then I think uh, a lot of those barriers go away and you can start thinking about designing applications differently. Now, there's definitely challenges with that, that sort of approach to building applications, like how do they communicate well. But I think it's uh, definitely worth exploring because it's a lot easier to manage or develop and test uh, small things. And then once they're working well, leave them alone and start a new one um, rather than just continuing to lump code into one massive project. So yeah, I think there's there's definitely some interesting architectural things that, that you could see change there as well. I'm definitely looking forward to that kind of a direction. And it seems like there are even some things within Rails that may be leaning toward that, having more self-contained apps packaged in a plugin and that kind of thing, almost like the way that Django has a bunch of mini apps or the way that you could just mount a bunch of small Sinatra apps under different paths and, and have to keep them pretty, pretty self-contained. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, actually, I just saw, it looks like Yehuda Katz will be giving a... Um, talk at rails Confo 9 on like the ability to mount a rails app into basically uh for lack of a better word i guess like a rack process so anything that's that's running rack you'd be able to mount uh any rails app into it at some point using either map or uh, racks map functionality which puts an app at a certain uri or racks cascade functionality which you know, we'll try to invoke an application. If it returns a 404, we'll try the next application. Um, so those are things that people have been experimenting with for a few months now, now that there's sort of this middleware and rat craze. And we don't 
I don't think fully understand how to assemble applications yet, but we there's definitely some interesting things that could happen as far as uh, being able to deploy things uh, very granularly or split them out at uh, later, combining applications and plugins. So interesting stuff. Well, fascinating. Thanks for the conversation and uh, looking forward to seeing what continues to happen with Rack, with Sinatra, with Heroku. Definitely enough to keep you busy. Absolutely. The Rails Podcast is sponsored by Peep Code Screencasts. New content out now on Objective-C for Rubyists, which has already been called the best screencast from Peep Code yet by early viewers. Work together with Scott Stevenson of CocoDevCentral.com to put together information you need in order to get started with developing an Objective-C, which is useful for writing programs for the iPhone and for macOS 10 desktop applications. Hosting and bandwidth provided by Rails Machine.